You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good evening. A warm welcome to everyone here in the ceremonial hall of the University of Oslo and to all of you following tonight's event on live stream from public libraries across the country. My name is Susanne Kalutsa, and I'm the CEO of the House of Literature. It is my pleasure to introduce this evening's guest of honor, esteemed author, professor, and Nobel laureate, Abdul Razak Gona. Abdul Razak Gona is the author of 10 novels, five of which are available in Norwegian translation by Kari and Kjell Risvik and Tone Formo, and published by Gyllendal. In addition, Gunnar has also written a number of short stories, essays, and criticism. When I first read Professor Gunnar's novels, they made it embarrassingly obvious what the literature I had been reading was lacking. That's the thing with blind spots, isn't it? You don't know what you're missing until it's pointed out to you. Gunnar's novels are doors into history, particularly different parts of colonial history of the last centuries, told from an East African point of view. We come face to face with German and British colonizers, experience the advent of the First World War, and live through the Zanzibar Revolution, some of history's heaviest events portrayed through the lives of ordinary people. Gunnar doesn't give us heroes and villains, but rather people, who are fully formed and unique in their everydayness, and who quite often feel in some way alienated from the world around them. With great generosity and sympathy for all of his characters, he explores themes such as migration and displacement, the history of colonialism, as well as love and loss. His stories are often set in the region we now call Tanzania, his place of birth, or in Britain, often seen through the eyes of immigrants. Gurna gives us great literature that also challenges us to alter our perspectives and to address the power structures that create inequalities both between individuals and societies. And since Professor Gurna was awarded a 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature, I am happy to see his stories are being discovered by more and more readers in Norway and across the globe. In addition to being an author, Gudna has been a teacher and a professor of English and post-colonial literature for decades, and he has been an important mentoring figure for a number of prominent writers, including, among others, Nadifa Mohammed and Yvonne Uwood. Another writer who has read and been inspired by Professor Gurna's work over the years is the acclaimed author Leila Abulela, whose last publication, River Spirit, is a comprehensive and eye-opening historical novel set in the 19th century Sudan. We are so happy to have her here with us tonight. So please give a warm welcome to both Abdul Razak Gurna and Leila Abulela. Good evening, and um, my thanks to my hosts um, for granting me this uh, privilege. 
uh, it's an honor to, to, to speak to Professor Gurna, not only because uh, uh, of all of the things you heard, but also because uh, he's, he's a writer whose writing I have read over the decades. And uh, the first time that uh, someone encounters a favorite writer is, can never be forgotten. And my first experience of uh, reading uh, Abdurazak Gurnar was in the anthology, the Heinemann book of contemporary African uh, short stories. <laughs> it was edited by uh, Chinua Achebe, and uh, it was uh, published in 1992. And uh, this actually is, was a special year for me because this is the year that I started to write, and I started to read as a writer. I was living in Aberdeen at the time and homesick for, for the life I left in Sudan, and uh, I discovered that writing fiction was a way of doing something useful with my homesickness. The story in this uh, uh, collection is Cages, and it is one of my favorite short stories of all time, and really it's a masterclass in the art of the short story. Um, it's about Hamid, who works in a shop, um, and the opening line tells us uh, there were times when it felt to Hamid as if he had been in the shop always and that his life would end there. When an attractive girl starts coming regularly to the shop, Hamid starts to become self-conscious of himself. And um, he says uh, she had been right to look at him with disdain. His body and his mouth felt stale. There was little cause to wash more than once every other day. The journey from bed to shop took a minute or so, and he never went anywhere else. What was there to wash for? His legs were misshapen from lack of proper exercise. He had spent the day in bondage. Months and years had passed like that. A fool stuck in a pen all his life. Um, and uh, so I want to ask you uh, about Hamid and, and, and his character. What fascinated you about such a, 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 this, this kind of character and the condition of, 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 um, of bondage uh, which, which he's living in? Okay. Well, first of all, though, I do remember you wrote me an email. <laughs> okay. Uh, you hadn't, I don't think at that point, published anything that I had heard of anyway. And am I right in thinking you were in Indonesia? Yes, I was, yeah. And I got this email from um, somebody called Leila. Actually, my, my daughter's also called Leila, so I was quite used to the name. And she um, said that she'd read this story, um, Cages, and that, if I remember correctly, said it's the best story I've ever read. <laughs> and I thought, what a good person this is. <laughs> So that's the first time. That's yes. the first time I heard from you. Uh, and then, of course, we've, since then, for various reasons, uh, had various other exchanges and emails. What was I writing? Uh, you see, I mean, a lot, of, uh, <clears throat> a lot of the small shops in... This is a particular one, a particular shop in Dar es Salaam. A lot of small shops were run by... Um, could be... Uh, say uh, people from uh, of Indian ancestry or people of Hadrami ancestry that is say from Yemeni uh, from Yemen rather 
uh, or sometimes also people who are not from these groups. But a lot of the small shops were like that. And these will be shops, I don't know if any of you have traveled in that part of the world, you may have seen them. These will be shops that will be corner shops, you know, neighborhood shops that would sell all kinds of things, basically anything that you might require from the neighborhood. It, would be, it wouldn't be furniture or fridges or cookers or that kind of thing, but it would be rice or sugar or ghee or razor blades or that kind of thing. And many of the people who worked in those shops were like prisoners, it seemed to me. Uh, I also know this intimately because uh, a part of my family who lived in Dar es Salaam ran one of these shops. And I used to see the uh, total absorption with which the shopkeeper would, young people sometimes, but they were, they were like prisoners. They, were, they never went anywhere, they never did anything. This would be this is their life. Um, and, and yet, at the same time, you know, uh, it's a bustling, busy city. Um, and so that was the idea of having somebody who is kind of dislocated in a place in which he is strange, really, even though he'd been there for years, but that's it. His life is in that shop. In a sense, it became the first step towards the figure of Khalil in paradise, um, imagining somebody like that. Who, but of course, in the case of Khalil, he's also imprisoned in a proper sense of being taken away from his family. But that's where that came from. Um, I like the, in the story the description of the girl in the story, the girl that comes to the shop, and the, the kind of romance which is not a conventional one. And uh, her name is Ruqiya, and uh, she's the one who comes and goes while he's the one who is stuck in the shop. And, uh, and she's the one with the steady employment. She works in a, as a maid in a glamorous hotel, and, and, and you know, he's the one who's in, 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 in bondage. So in all your work, uh, By the Sea, Desertion, Gravel Heart, the women have these vibrant characters and, the, and they have an influence on the, on the plot. Uh, dis, despite the restrictions of, of their lives, they have agency. Um, in, By the, in By the Sea, you describe them as having, uh, your, that's in your words, a stronger sense of mercy of the balance between things. And they're also capable, and they do cause pain, and they bring shame to their family. So um, were you conscious that you were describing um, women in, in, that, in that way? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let's go back to the story before we come to By the Sea. Okay. <laughs> because you call, you call it a romance, but in reality, I don't want to spoil it if any of you are kind of encouraged enough to think, hey, I must go look up that story. But in fact, in fact, it's a one-sided romance, if you like. It's, it's uh, the prisoner in the shop who becomes kind of obsessed with this woman who comes and goes. From her part, she's disdainful of these attentions. So it's, it's not really a romance. Uh, it is, in a way, uh, an expression, I suppose, of her worldliness on the one hand and his naivety, or rather his... Uh, imprisonment, his bondage, and that he doesn't know what to do, he doesn't know how to make anything happen. Uh, and she, when she realizes his interest, is really, I'll leave it at there. <laughs> In the case of uh, all these women who are 
Um, I believe that is the case, that uh, in, in, certainly in the, in the society I grew up in, and perhaps elsewhere as well, I think so, that uh, I think the, the phrase, the, 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 the portrayal is to say they're the ones who, who kind of weave the fabric of life. They're the ones who keep the peace between the children, say, and their father. They're the ones who make sure that things continue to work, who placate, who reassure, who, you know, put the, you know, antiseptic on the gray's knee and so on. It's, so in that sense, uh, I think, you know, the, the role that they play is this nurture, not just in a straightforward nurturing, of course, straightforwardly nurturing, but in a kind of social sense also nurturing. They're the ones who say, how did you go at school? And how this, let me tell, you, tell me about it, and that sort of thing. Um, so that's really what I mean. I mean that the women, especially in a, I think in a gender sort of differentiated culture like the one I came from where the men go out there and sit in a cafe and drink coffee and talk about the important things about the world, um, um, and the women are probably at home doing the things that need to be done, like um, you know, not only just cooking, but also making sure that the shopping's done and the ironing's done and the children are okay and whatever. So it's in that respect that they, I think that the, the role is not just simply a matter of uh, kind of just simply differentiating lazy men and hardworking women, but really quite an important way in which they, that phrase that I mentioned earlier, kind of, they're the ones who weave the fabric of that sort of social life, as it were, make sure everything is connected and is working. So even to the extent of actually probably telling the men what they have to do. Yeah. And then sometimes these women connect with, with, uh, with powerful characters, like they, they, uh, they have liaisons with a politician or something, and that that also... Yeah, that they can, then they get seduced by the big world. Yes. <laughs> uh, and of course, this is also to do with generations, it's to do with, uh, with um, individual temperament and sensibility. Not everybody's willing to play this other role that says, because although I say men just go sit in the cafe, but there, there, is, there is a kind of a, <clears throat> maybe not so much now, but uh, I believe... I believe things have changed enough for that to be the case. But there was certainly, say, for uh, people of my parents' generation, uh, there would be almost a kind of pressure, why, why do you want to do that? I'll do it for you. Why do you want to go to the post office? I'll go and post your letter. Why do you want to go to the whatever? So in other words, there was, there was a way in which uh, the men were worldly, the women were not only... Um, well, they're basically almost prevented from participating in worldly affairs, except in their own kind of circumscribed spaces, um, which they, in return, also prevented the men from participating in. <laughs> so that no men are allowed in this. Uh, but essentially, what it means is that, what it meant, rather, was that uh, so far as... Um, you know, complicated affairs of the world. They had no agency. They couldn't participate fully in that. Um, but amongst them, there would be women who thought, no, this is nonsense, I am going to do it. And they would break the rules. And they would do 
those, uh, some of those things that, uh, that I think you're referring to, like having affairs with European men and that kind of thing. Um, so the, the, the anthology is out of print and, and I want readers to, to, to read Cages as you said, they, 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 some of them might want to do that. So I just want to ask, is there any plans to publish short stories, a, a collection of your short stories or anything like that? Well, there has been a, um, you know, a suggestion, shall we do, shall we do, but I think um, in time. In time. We'll do. Okay, sure. At the moment, there are other things that, it's, to, to me, are more uh, immediate, completing, uh, working on a new book, completing that new book, and then the, the various uh, demands, not demands, not demands, but, you know, interest to say, can we collect the short stories? Well, basically, I'm not a short story writer. Uh, I've written a few, uh, not that many, I don't know how many, about maybe seven or eight or something like that. And very often it's been as a result of uh, prompting from somebody uh, who says, I'm doing a collection of short stories, would you be interested in contributing one? And if I happen to be not doing anything else, I might have said, yeah, all right, I'll have a go. Uh, and quite nice, write a short story. Uh, very often, it, it, uh, as it turned out, very often it would be about something that I was interested in which then becomes part of a novel in a way, you know, not in a direct way, but the idea of it. Or sometimes somebody says, write, would you like to write a short story? I say, yeah, okay, I'll have a go. And then a short story begins, then it becomes a novel and not a short story. <laughs> uh, so I don't think of myself as a writer of short stories. So when, when uh, interested people, publishers, I mean, say, what about collecting these stories? And I think, well, there are seven or eight, it doesn't make a collection. And I don't really want to write another six short stories to now to make a collection. So I think it's one of those things. I just leave it, and maybe in time there might be enough to to provide a short story collection. But you know, I'm not I'm not desperate for it. They'll if they want to find the story cages, they'll find it. They'll don't find worry. it. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so there's another anthology which, uh, in which you work. I don't know if you remember this oh, one. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this was, it's called uh, Extravagant Strangers. I don't know if you can see it. And it's edited by Carl Phillips. It was published in 1997. And the title comes from uh, Othello. And Carl, Carl Phillips includes all kinds of British writers not born in Britain and he arranges them historically, starting with black writers who emerged in the wake of the slave trade, like uh, Olada Equano, featured on the cover. And then uh, there are writers who are descendants of the British Empire colonizers, like Jean Rees, Kipling, Doris Ress Lessing, Pen Penelope Lively, George or Orwell. Then there's the descendants of the colonized yourself, Ben Okri, Anita Desai. And uh, you're here represented uh, with an extract from your novel, Pilgrim's Way, uh, in which uh, your young African protagonist experiences ex exclusion, uh, antagonism, and um, loneliness as he makes his way in an England of cathedrals and spires. Uh, Carl Phillips says that the question of belonging occupies all of these writers in varying de degrees, and that he's saying, in the tension between the person and the society, the finest writing is produced. Um, 
Would you describe yourself as an extravagant stranger? No, no. <laughs> okay. No, no. Those of you who know your Othello will know that the person who says that is Iago. Uh, and Iago is describing uh, Othello as a wheeling, extravagant stranger from here and nowhere. Um, and I find this really interesting because he only uses extravagant strangers. But I find it interesting that this, this idea of not only a stranger, but a stranger from here and nowhere, and that sense of uh, um, totally, ex almost totally excluding this person from human community in a way. He's not from anywhere. He's just a stranger from nowhere. Uh, so no, I'm not an extravagant stranger at all. Uh, and in the case of Yago, of course, what he was saying was that he's, he's a nobody. Who's this person? He's a nobody. He's not only a stranger, but he's a nobody. Now, I think uh, Carol Phillips is using just simply extravagant stranger to kind of uh, sort of ennoble, I suppose, the condition of being stranger. Fair enough. It was, a, it was I think, a period thing where, where there was a desire to see migration and dislocation, I suppose, not as, not a, a, as a negative, but as something which, uh, which is dynamic, which, and, and I see that. And I think probably there is a truth in that, uh, too. Um, so, but there's also, of course, the other side. We see it more obviously in this era, uh, the other side of uh, the ugliness of the reception that that extravagant stranger is receiving in Europe. Um, so I actually love this anthology very much and uh, when it came out I, was, I had started to write but um, I wasn't yet published and uh, it meant a great deal to me to aspire to somehow belong to it in a kind of imaginary extension because he, um, he's got the writers by age and, and you're one of the youngest ones. Yeah, and well, time passes, you know. <laughs> And then the very youngest one is, 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 is Ben Okri. And then, um, but what Carl Phillips doesn't uh, mention is the age of the writers when they came to, to Britain. And um, uh, I left Sudan and came to Britain at the age of 23. And by then I had graduated university, married and had uh, one son. Uh, and, and you came at the age of, uh, of, of 17, 18. Uh, so to what extent do you think that the age uh, and the stage of life affects the move? Yeah, yeah I think it, I think it, it is important. Uh, I would imagine that uh, somebody who comes very young, although you know, it doesn't mean the end of everything, but somebody who comes here very young without uh, first-hand memories of that uh, other place, uh, even though they may very well hear about that other place from the parents and so on. But that is still a different experience from, uh, I think, somebody who's, who comes with fully formed memories, or rather, mem they're not memories because they're just experience, fully formed experiences, knowledge, language, culture, you know, perhaps it might be religion or whatever it might be, uh, to another place which not only speaks a different language, has different cultural, uh, you know, uh, practices, another religion, and all sorts of other ways of thinking about you as you arrive there, which you are now able to actually discern as a fully formed adult almost. I would have thought it would make a big difference. 
I'm not saying one is easier than the other. Um, but uh, I think in a way, probably if you come without all of that, you have to relearn that experience if you want. Or you can, I suppose, to some extent anyway, leave it behind. I don't think you can if you, if you come kind of uh, fully formed or at least three-quarters formed uh, in, in, in terms of how you, you understand the world. Then the other place lives on in a, in a, in a, maybe in a different way. Because I'm aware that there are people, many, many people who, who, who are of the kind that come there either very young or they're even born uh, away from their, I guess, ancestral home. But who nevertheless have a full desire to know about it, to belong to it, to engage with it, and so on. Um, so it's not to say that one is, you know, you can shrug one off and say, well, you know. But I do know there is a difference because I have children who, who have grown up, and so do you, who have grown up in, uh, in the United Kingdom, and they, however much they might want to ally themselves to that, affiliate themselves to that other place, it's, it's, it's a choice which, say, I don't have because I, I can't get rid of it, even if I wanted to. Um, so, uh, talking about the arrival, your novel uh, By the Sea um, gives the arrival in Britain a prominent space and context, focusing on a 60-year-old man, a refugee, seeking asylum in, in Britain, or, I mean, it starts like that. And he arrives in Gatwick Airport, and reading it again recently, I was amazed at how current it felt. It felt that um, that it's happening now, and the media is full of the, you know, stories of the migrant uh, crisis. Um, so why do you think that uh, By the Sea, By the Sea was published in 2001, but it was so ahead of its time? Yeah, well, I wouldn't have said so. What I mean is, uh, although it's nice to think like that, you know, like I was kind of some kind of prophet or something like that, hey, <laughs> I knew what was coming. Really, the truth of it is that things haven't changed. That's the truth of it, um, which is to say, so I wrote, 2000, I wrote, when I wrote it in 2001, the, the target of this kind of panic that we're now seeing about refugees, the target would have been, say, for example, Central European Roma people, or people coming from Zimbabwe or DRC. And if, if you have any kind of sense of um, what's I don't know what's been happening in Norway or, or even in other parts of Europe, but I, I know that what's, what was happening in the, in the United Kingdom or in England uh, is that this process had been going on, certainly from the, the post-war period. I don't want to bore you, but there is a kind of legislati legislative history that is really interesting to think about. Um, in 1948, after the war, labor shortages, they passed a law. There hadn't been a law before that said people from the uh, British Empire, from the colonies, basically, uh, could come to work in England. There wasn't actually a law. It was just understood. You were all subject of the king or the queen. Therefore, England was your home kind of thing. So there's no reason not to come. In 1948, explicitly, a law was passed to say that uh, anybody who was uh, the subject of the king, in other words, a subject of the British Empire, had a right to 
come to the UK and work and reside there. It was crazy from their part. I mean, it was just hubris. We need, we need people to come and work. So they passed this law. And they suddenly realized that they've actually opened the door to people they don't want. They wanted to be able to choose, okay, you can come and then you can go away when you, when you finish building our hospitals or whatever it is. But they opened the door and they said you can reside. So then they have, there had to be a series of laws that followed to try and restrict this. And they didn't want to do it in a way that said, oh, here's a bunch of racists saying, no, we don't want any black people here. They didn't want to do it that way. So they kept finding euphemisms, saying, okay, you can come if your grandfather is uh, uh, an English person, or you can come, a hundred of you can come from India, and a hundred of you from, come from Pakistan, until in the end they said, none of you can come. But these were a series of law going from 1962, 1968, until I think eventually 1979, something like that. But the target, who is it that these laws are being passed about or against, kept changing. It didn't matter. Just foreigners. And not just foreigners, of course, but foreigners who weren't of European ancestry. This is what it amounts to. In other words, all of these were racist laws when you come down to it. The laws discriminate, that discriminated against foreigners from certain places, from those very places that had been the territories that were colonies of Britain. And the same, of course, is true of France, and the same is true of other parts of those who had empires. But it's now also true of most of Europe. I know the same is true of the UK. I know there are a lot of people in Europe who don't share that hostility. And I know this is also true of the UK. But somehow it's always possible to generate this hostility, uh, either through the press or through fear, the fear of politicians who think if we say what perhaps, you know, with, if we speak with more humanely about these things, we'll lose votes, we'll do that, we'll do that. So although there is a great deal of uh, goodwill amongst many, many people, in the end it does seem a new target appears. And the same rhetoric, the same language is applied now to another group. They are now the people who are going to come and ruin everything. We're going to come and take away our prosperity. We're going to come and, you know, rape our daughters or whatever it is that people fear. So I wish it was just simply a, a prophecy of now. What is even more distressing is that it's something that doesn't seem to go away. Yes. No, it's true. I mean, when you read it, it feels as if it's happening now. As you're reading, you think this is happening now in Gatwick. So it's, it has this kind of... It's actually worse. It's worse. I think it's worse now because there was something slapdash about um, what do you do with these people, mm. whereas now there are actually various attempts to make laws that say that this new one that in the UK, anyway, the little boat, illegal something or the other, if you come on a little boat, we'll send you to Rwanda. Mm. Or most recently, the Ascension Islands. Do you know where the Ascension Islands are? Some of you know. The Ascension Islands are small, small, small islands in the, deep in the South Atlantic, the middle of nowhere. And this is a new destination, they think. This, what is this? This is a kind of 
it's, it's uh, a hostility of the most profound kind. You think this is almost inhuman. Um, yeah, so also in the, in the, in the by the sea, the, the narrator who's come, who has arrived, um, he makes contact with another migrant also, another somebody who's come in, a younger man from the same neighborhood, Latif, and also Rachel, who is his English uh, social worker. Uh, to some extent, one represents the past and one the future, and the novel hints at a relationship between the two young characters. To what extent do these new relationships uh, support the newly arrived refugee? There was also, of course, something else in, the, in writing a novel. As you know, novels don't just have one kind of uh, root or one idea and so on. And the other is what people bring with them. So what, in, in a way, this is a hostility which already exists from where they come from, and now it has to be worked out in this strange place. Uh, so partly it's not so much to do with, okay, I'll take the past and present and future thing, but, <laughs> but, it's, but I think it's also to do with sort of sorting out um, the other life. I think people who are dislocated, people who are, it doesn't have to be from uh, Zanzibar to England, it could be from, I don't know, from Poland to Norway, for all I know, but people who are dislocated, people who are away from the place where they uh, perhaps uh, belonged to or started from or something like that. Like, you carry that with you. Uh, and you carry that in... in uh, imaginatively, but also in a kind of living way. So there is, a, there, is a, there is a practical life that you do. You do your work, you go this, you get to know how to do things, you know how to go to the bank and blah, 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 speak the language, but there is another life that also goes on. Uh, and that might be quite complicated. It might be life that is still connected, so you might still have relatives on the phone, send money home, go visit or whatever, but it might be that you can't even do that, but it still continues. So this sense of a life that continues in the imagination, as it were, uh, while you're living this other life, apparently a normal person, I wanted that sense. Um, but I wanted also here, where you have actually somebody who was part of this other life and has a grievance against you and, and comes and says, oh, hello then. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember, in that sense, of people coming with their histories, but in a different place? And now they, this is a, an arena, as well, where the only possible arena, where they have to work it out. And they have to work it out by telling their understanding of what had happened, of what had gone on before. I think now it's even more because of WhatsApp and, and the ease of, of being in touch so that people who have arrived here, you know, haven't really left like we have left because they, they're constantly on the phone, they're constantly FaceTiming. Yeah, WhatsApping their families. It's, and, it's made a big difference. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a big difference. It was, phoning was very expensive back in, in the yeah, day yeah, and it yeah, wasn't sure. something, or letter writing as in some of your novels. You were, yeah, letter writing was good. Letter yeah. writing was... I, I, but, you know, letter writing requires um, that your correspondent responds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's just a one-way street. And so 
there I was, you know, a homesick teenager, in, uh, late teenager, but still a homesick teenager in England, writing these letters, of, but people are living their lives, you know, they, they can't engage with this. So after a while you think, you know, it kind of doesn't continue. So you really need, you really need a correspondent on the other side who's, who's willing to engage in this. Yeah, but letter writing was important, but I think, but on the other hand, you know, WhatsApp doesn't really allow you speaking on the phone even, let alone WhatsApp, or even a video, it seems to me, doesn't really allow you to, to there is a kind of performance that you do mm. when you do that. You, you speak in a certain way, you talk about certain things. Uh, you don't say I'm depressed, for example, probably some might, but, but you try not to, you know, because it seems you shouldn't. You try to be upbeat, you try to talk about plans or what you're doing, or how's it going there. You don't say, I have this backache that's been tormenting me for days and I can't get rid of it. Yeah. Or maybe you do, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, recently when the, the war started in Sudan and oh, I yes. was calling my cousins, I could hear the, 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 the bombing behind them. Yeah. And so it's, it was very, very surreal because uh, we would speak normally and then suddenly, you know, they'll say to me, can you hear this, can you hear this? Yeah. And so it was happening in real time. And then, sure. of course, I have to put the phone down and, and, and kind of live my normal life. And so it was, it was very odd, this, uh, how the, the technology, the, the, the communication was co kind of continuing, even though uh, all this was happening. And it's a very, very recent phenomenon. I mean, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't something in, 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 in the past. At, at no, it's true, it's true, yeah. it's true. But now everybody has a mobile phone, you know. Even the guy working in the docks has a mobile phone, you know. So, uh, porters, directors, uh, taxi drivers. Everybody. Yes, all the soldiers who, uh, you know, w came into the houses, mm. you know, they broke in. They weren't wanting mobile phones because they have mobile phones. They want to charge mobile phones. <laughs> <They want to. laughs> so it's, it's, everybody has a mobile phone, yes. Um, would you like some water? No, I'm all right. Thanks. You're all right. Okay. So I, I'm going to ask about Admiring Silence, which is one of my favorite of your novels. And it's a classic situation which many of us have lived through of uh, returning to home and the unexpected emotions and the contradictions and the stories that this throws up. So after 20 years away, your, your narrator goes home and his family assumed that he has come home for good, but he has changed and he has put roots in, in England. There's a lot of humor in admiring silence. Do you think that humor provides a distance for, for people coping with loss? I think writing um, in that form maybe does. I, well, of course, humor always um, helps, but humor can also be a way of evading. Um, what needs to be said or done. We're all familiar with somebody who kind of gives you the big laugh <laughs> when they don't really want to speak, when they really don't want to, uh, to speak seriously. But there is also a, a form of writing um, in, a, in a way which is kind of self-deprecating, which is making fun of oneself, as it were, because it's a narrator. Mm. So it's, a, it's an I book, it's a first person voice and there is a way of making fun of oneself uh, um, I don't know quite how to put it really because it's also at the same time uh, 
but exaggerating one's fallibility, one's um, you know, uh, incapacities and so on. Uh, and it's also a way of naming them, of saying, so you, you understand that this is an exaggeration, that this person is not quite as incapable as he is. But, so it's a kind of lament, if you like, which, which is told in a self-mocking way. Um, because otherwise, it would just be self-pity. It mm. would just turn out to be, uh, this is what's wrong with my life. But to make fun of your life is also being self-pitying, but you're inviting the, the reader, as it were, to, to, um, to be sympathetic, to think, oh yeah, you know. So what I hope happens is that as you read that person's account, you don't think, oh, what a nasty, horrible, boring man. And you think that you kind of are amused by the way he's putting his experiences, the way he's describing his experiences. Uh, and the way he's describing other people as well, you know, so he's kind of drawing you into his, his satirical way of, of looking at what's yeah. going on. Um, so if you like it, it means you like that. Uh, no, it's, it's yeah. very funny, but especially yeah. the, the, the bathroom, the, the struggles with the, <laughs> the bathroom with the when toilets, he goes with yeah. the toilets, yeah. Okay, but you will read it and find out. Well, that was, <laughs> that was, that was I visited Zanzibar for the very first time. Uh, in 1984, after having been unable to go back for many, many years because of uh, the, the politics did not allow me to, having left illegally. But it was possible to go back in 1984. And the toilets were blocked. The toilets were blocked. Can you imagine the toilets yeah. being blocked? You can't. <laughs> you simply can't imagine what happens when the toilets are blocked. You can't flush the toilets. But everybody's still using the toilets, but you can't flush well, them. Well, they have to. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, I have a favorite quote in the book, and I discovered in my Kindle that other people have highlighted it as well, uh -huh. so I'm, I'm happy that uh, other people love it as well. And it, when his, one of your char characters says, it comes at the end of the novel, and it's actually said in the airplane, which is heading back to England. Uh, Even after all these years, I can't get over the feeling of being alien in England, of being a foreigner. Sometimes I think that what I feel for England is disappointed love. So my question is, where does the disappointment come from? Is it related to unrealistic expectation? And then in desertion, which we'll talk about uh, next, you describe England as an abstraction of mythic proportions, an impossible destination now arrived at. So is the disappointment because of the, the un unrealistic expectation? Well, it wasn't, it was, I wasn't, some, I wasn't describing how I felt about England when I said this is, uh, um, that this no longer, it doesn't feel like, after all these years, it still doesn't feel like home or something like that. Uh, although that part of it is true, but that I think what, what it is is disappointed love. That, that's not how I feel. I don't think I went to England in love with England, so in that respect it wasn't uh, a disappointment. Um, although it was disappointment for other reasons, but, but not because I was, I was there in love. But it's because of the way I wanted him, the narrator, to, to frame his understanding of his experience, that, uh, that his experience is one um, of having wanted to love England, but it hadn't been possible. 
to do so. So it's in that way. And the, the desertion reference is, can you tell me again, please? The, an abstraction of mythic proportions and impossible destination now arrived at. Yeah, well, that would be certainly true, I think, because as, as that passage goes on, I think uh, it refers, for example, to the poem by Senghor uh, about New York and refers to the way many uh, people from the West Indies thought of, of England as uh, the home country, the mother country, that kind of thing. So it's that idea of going to England uh, with this kind of, this myth, uh, which of course is impossible in the same way as uh, uh, Senghor's New York could, could not be. He's celebrating the Harlem Renaissance, but it's impossible to, to make that really fit the, the reality of New York, even at that time, in the same way as those other myths about England cannot be realized. So I think that's, that's a more general point. But the first one is really to speak about, uh, I'm still going back, but I'm not going back because of uh, my love has been returned, as it were. I'm going back as, as an unwanted person. The same, the same kind of, uh, I realize now as I say this, but Gravel Heart also ends with somebody who has been back and then is returning with that same sense of, I'm going back, but I know they don't want me there. Yeah, I think. Um. So, uh, speaking about the desertion now, and it's recently been published in, in Norway, so that's very exciting. Yesterday, wasn't it? Somebody told me. It oh, came out yesterday. congratulations. <laughs> um, it's one of my favorite of your novels, and uh, I think... Hey, maybe that's two. That's, well, I have three. I have three favorites, yes. I have three favorites. <laughs> and cages. And cages. And cages. <laughs> Cages deserves just to be published on its own. Why not a little book like that? <laughs> you tell the publishers, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and desertion is very, is, is, um, it's powerful, it's moving, it's immersive, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful reading experience which is both um, aesthetically and you know, intellectually fulfilling. And it's, 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 it's a beautiful novel in the sense that there's beautiful descriptions of nature, of people, and, um, and uh, it, it, it kind of, the, the novel is aware of that in a way, and maybe if you can read the, the part that okay. we, we, we spoke about, yeah. Or if you want to tell us about the character who's saying, this Martin. Uh, so the, the novel opens in 1899. It's, um, you were asking me earlier, where is it? I'm thinking of it as uh, in the, north, the coast of North Kenya, possibly Malindi, those of you who know the geography of that area. In other words, not a small town, a small port town, um, north of Mombasa. And the figures that are at first in this are um, a shopkeeper, Hassan Ali, who's in, in, of Indian ancestry, um, and his sister, uh, a, a British administrator, uh, the district officer, um, uh, a scholar, a British English scholar, 
what we would then have called an Orientalist, uh, without any problems until later Said told us that Orientalists are uh, figures we should hate. Um, and I guess those are the four figures in this opening part. This is, this is the Frederick Turner, the district officer, the administrator. So they've heard a rumor, information has come, that there is a, a European man who's arrived in the town injured. So he's heard this, so he's going to find out where this person is, what's happened to him. They stepped into the square and Martin glanced at the Wakil to see if he shared his sense of relief. It was as if they had walked through a large house and witnessed its domestic intimacies. So for a moment, he did, not, he did not take in the openness and orderliness of the square, the proper and fitting dimensions of the mosque in one corner, its blue doors open now in mid-morning, the fields beyond, the cafe with marble-topped tables, the neat houses and the billowing curtains that screened the doorways. When he did, he made a small noise of pleasure, a hum, through, a hum through his nostrils that was both recognition and approval. This is what we mean by beauty, he thought, this composure, this balance. And he felt his eyes smart with homesickness, even though nothing in front of him looked like England. Um, desertion is partly set in the 19th century and then uh, in the 1950s. Uh, and it opens with uh, Rihanna, who is the sister of the shopkeeper that you mentioned. And she's abandoned by her husband. He's uh, traveled by sea and he, he never comes back. And, um, and then in the 1950s, we have uh, a young man who is forced to, uh, by his parents to give up his uh, true love and then we have his brother, Rashid, who goes to England and, and never comes back. So um, in all these examples, there's no former, formal, formal severance. I mean, there's no, Rihanna is not divorced and she's not widowed. So she's just kind of like, she, she just feels that she's deserted. And uh, Rashid goes to study thinking he's coming back, but then he, he doesn't come back. Uh, uh, but then he, he's told, don't come back, you know, and the situation is such that he cannot come back. So with our kind of modern psychology way of thinking, none of these people have had closure. You know, they haven't had a, um, a, a proper saying goodbye, a proper, you know, wrapping things up. Do you think that this absence of closure is what causes the ang anguish that's in the book? <clears throat> Maybe. But uh, I, I was also thinking these are unfulfilled lives. So whether closure is the right word or not, uh, smacks a little bit of psychology. It does, yes. <laughs> but that these are unfulfilled lives, the people whose lives have been prevented from seeing the way through. In the case of Rehana, I should say, I don't think that will spoil anything because, in fact, that was part of the, the, the impulse for uh, telling that story, that it, 
it's the Orientalist man that I mentioned actually then has a relationship with this uh, woman, Rahana. Um, so it is an interracial relationship in 1899 in a colonial setting like that, a most unlikely uh, relationship because it would have been, it would have appeared transgressive from both sides, from the side of uh, the, the imperial society as it were, and it would also have appeared improper from the, uh, the side of the native people or the local people uh, as well. So it's transgressive in both senses. Uh, inevitably, as such relationships more or less always ended, he goes back to England. So that's the desertion, that desertion, anyway. So that's what I mean by unfulfilled, even though she finds then, but then, you see, because of having broken, having broken the rules, there is no way back for somebody like Rehana after that to say, oh, well, that was over, now let me see if I can find a, make a relationship with somebody else because now she's already marked as somebody who has, it would seem, uh, sort of gone beyond the uh, conditions of propriety, as it were. In other words, she's, it would seem to many people that she's a prostitute almost, although it doesn't have to be like that. It could be a proper relationship, as this relationship suggests, but that's how it would seem, because you've broken the rules. And this would not be peculiar to that situation, of course, it would be wherever uh, encounters are hostile, I think. Mm. Uh, and in the case of the, the, the Rashid, he's not really that important in a way in thinking about desertion. It's more like the story of his brother who stayed behind uh, and who has an affair with Rahana's granddaughter. Mm. Uh, Jamila. So, Jamila. So and that too is forced for similar reasons is forced, now that may be spoiling things. <laughs> but anyway, it's those kinds of complicated desertions that prevent fulfillment. I was more interested in that than that it's, it's the inability for closure. If you want closure, fine. But it's not a, <laughs> it's not a word I would have used. Okay. I would have said it was more like these are lives that are not, for one reason or another, uh, do not arrive at fulfillment. Maybe that's not such a, an unusual thing, but some, in some cases it's, it's more um, painful or more extreme than in others. Maybe we don't all of us feel fulfilled anyway, but, but you know, in some cases where things are actually prevented from happening, maybe it feels worse. Yeah. Okay. Um. The novel also um, shows the, the, the political disarray and the collapse of security and, and all that that happens after independence from, from, from Britain, and, um, and, and which is described as a scramble to get out of Africa, that, that somehow this process of independence happened a little bit um, hastily because of after the, the Second World War and... Uh, yeah, and yeah, I was meaning that the, the, the British anyway kind of yes. left in a great hurry. Interestingly enough, you know, some people, uh, some, one or two readers, <laughs> one or two readers said, he's too forgiving. He's too forgiving. But what I meant was, I don't think I'm being too forgiving at all. I'm saying that the, the way in which uh, the imperial uh, nations, particularly the British and the French, the way in which they said at some point in the 1960s, we're going to get out of here. This is getting too difficult. 
I don't think they intended to. I don't think they intended to leave at that moment, as it were, or in such a hurry. But it was getting too difficult. Once the decolonization movement started really got going, particularly in Africa, it was impossible to keep uh, control. Um, there was just too many people and too few of them to keep control. So in the end, hastily, conference after conference, what they used to call those constitutional conferences, okay, you can have independence in January, you can have it in March, you can have it in June. Okay, goodbye, we're going. And, of course, that created, in its own way, havoc. Other reasons for havoc, but that too created havoc. The suddenness of it all. And uh, kind of secret papers being burnt in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and being packed in cases to take away because, you know, there might be sort of damaging information in there about the atrocities that they committed. Um, it, that's really what that means. They left in a hurry, they left in a panic, just couldn't wait to get out. Okay. Um, two minutes left. Two minutes left. <laughs> um, so just one last question about desertion. We all put our, um, you know, as writers, we use our life in, 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 our, in our works. But uh, is Rashid, his school, you know, the, the, the one, he's so clever at school and he likes to study and... Is, is that, that me? Is that you? <laughs> They're all me. They're all you. <laughs> no, 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 it's not. But actually, people have asked me that. But I very deliberately, uh, the, the time scale, if you, if you think about it, would be like the 19, late 1950s. But I imagine that the experience of uh, somebody who's you know, relatively uh, naive about the world, who never traveled anywhere, never done anything, um, uh, um, probably fairly bright, kind of half-educated, arrives in London to go to university. I expect it would, you know, there are probably many similarities about the kinds of things they would have experienced. I didn't, I didn't study in London when I first came, and so I didn't have that sense of the big city. I didn't have that, uh, although I did have that terror of London, but not because I lived in it. So I, it was more an imagined sense of how how those well, people coming from a small place like I did, how they would have uh, felt coming to a city like that and suddenly confronted with this. At the same time as the return, as you remember, as you said rather, the return is not possible. So you can't just say, um, I don't like it here, can I go home please? <laughs> There's none of that. Yes. You, have to, you have to get on with it, you have to make do. Well, the time is, is run. I have I had two more questions prepared, but I, I, I need to stop. Hmm? What? I can go on? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I thought I was going to be released here, yes. but you know, it's not. Okay. All right, come on, let's go on. Are you sure? Okay. Uh, in, okay, in a, in a recent interview with the News on Sunday, you spoke about memory and you said that memory is not just that I lived in Zanzibar until I was 18. It is what I heard, what I saw, and what subsequently happened. All of this is memory. Memory is like a huge swamp where every now and then something bubbles to the surface. So I'm 
very fascinated by this the, the image of the huge swamp and um, and and your access to it and how over time do you feel that the memories are fading or well the swamp the reason for saying a huge swamp is that these things are not always uh, under your control mm. so in the same way as you might be whatever and then something <laughs> comes up which you didn't perhaps really want uh, what I'm suggesting by that is that it's not, these are things are not, these are not where you can just say, let me remember so-and-so. There's a big difference between remembering and how memory functions. Uh, so remembering is both to some extent under control or to some extent even willed. So you might say, do you remember such and such? Or how did that happen or whatever? I'm thinking of those other things that kind of ambush you uh, when you're trying not to remember uh, and something still comes back and then uh, you do your best to kind of uh, I don't want to think about that right now. Uh, sometimes it happens in the middle of the night and keeps you awake which is really irritating um, but it's particularly so for, for a writer who works like the way I work which is uh, to some extent dependent on, uh, on recall uh, I think it's true of many writers, uh, but in any case, I can, I can only speak for myself, which depends on recall, on reconstructing, on imagining, on filling the spaces that you can't fully remember. Perhaps all writers work like that, but as I say, I don't know. I'm speaking for myself. Uh, and then in the midst of that, something you remember something else, or something else comes out of this swamp, uh, which is fine. It's brilliant, uh, because uh, the beauty of writing is that you then uh, engage with it um, and see what it means and work it out and understand it. And, and sometimes it becomes a very fruitful, productive uh, experience. But sometimes it's just painful and nothing comes out of it. Okay. Uh, that's it. That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>